Good morning, evening, afternoon. I have no idea. All of my times are messed up. Uh, I just wanted to say I'm sorry for not uploading last week. It's coming towards the end of my master's degree, and there's exams, group reports, everything you could possibly imagine, and I kind of need to pass. But don't worry, all of the uh, regular service will be resumed. I will be uploading every Thursday from now on. So let's get to episode seven, shall we? Right, so once again, welcome to Historian, the forum where we come and discuss the history behind current events and look at them through a modern magnifying glass. So now that we're in episode 7 and the third installment of Women of the World, I thought we would look at someone who was so powerful that she controlled a quarter of the world's population by the end of her reign. She was the architect of the Industrial Revolution and Empress of India. I am talking, of course, about the Queen of Great Britain, Queen Victoria. Alexandrina Victoria, sounds more Russian than English, was born at Kensington Palace on the 24th of May, 1819. After the death of her two uncles, Victoria was next in line to become queen, and her chances were good. However, her youth was dominated by an educational program called the Kensington System, which I would basically equate to a military school. There were a lot of rules which we had to abide by. For example, she wasn't allowed to have any alone time whatsoever. She had to share a room with her mother. Lessons began at 9.30 sharp and ended at 5 p.m. She was instructed in scripture, along with Greek, Latin, French, German, and Italian. The whole idea behind it was so her servant, John Conroy, um, we can call a very, very ambitious man, who was hell-bent to get power, would be able to manipulate her. So did it work? Hell no! Victoria grew to hate her mother for instituting this, and Conroy as a result. Her two requests upon becoming queen were, I want an hour alone per day, and I want my bed moved out of my mother's room. After her engagement to Prince Albert in 1840, she was no longer required to live with her mother, and she took revenge by telling her mother, Okay, I'm done with you. Out. She expelled her mother from the palace and rarely visited her until her first child was born. So Victoria was an angry lady. Let's not forget that these were very formative years in her childhood, which means that she was affected by it, especially when she became queen. Let's talk about how she became queen. On the 20th of June, 1837, Victoria became queen of Great Britain. How would the world react? Victoria was short at 4 foot 11 or 150 centimeters. She was also stout and chubby, being referred to as plump as a partridge. She wrote in her diary, I was awoken at six o'clock by Mama, who told me the Archbishop of Canterbury and and Lord Coiningham were here and wished to see me. I got out of bed and went into my sitting room, only in my dressing gown, and alone, and saw them. Lord Coiningham then acquainted me that my poor uncle, the king, was no more, and had expired twelve minutes past two this morning, and consequently that I am now queen. The Kensington system, which taught Victoria many things, did leave one glaring omission, however. That's how to keep her emotions in check. 
Her EQ was much less developed than that of more experienced monarchs and officials. She was therefore A, vulnerable to manipulation, and B, acted quite a lot out of her emotions. For example, Victoria falsely believed that her lady-in-waiting, which is posh speak for female advisor, was pregnant, and she was hated by the public for it. She was even booed by the crowds. When Lord Melbourne, the Prime Minister of England at the time, and his government fell, the leader of the opposition Conservative Party agreed to become Prime Minister, as is customary, right? And appointed Tory ladies-in-waiting. She refused them because she actually was more fond of the other party. So she refused the new Prime Minister's advisors and sent him home and appointed Lord Melbourne again, which was completely unconstitutional. This is something she would later regret. She wrote, I was very young then, and perhaps I should act differently if it was all to be done again. Victoria was only 18 when she was crowned queen. And at the time, the monarchy had a very bad reputation in England. There was a growing republican movement which aimed to get rid of the monarchy completely. And previous monarchs had been hit with scandals of sex, alcohol abuse extravagance and holding lavish feasts while the population was starving. Victoria, therefore, decided that it's time to redefine what it means to be queen. When Victoria married her first cousin, Prince Albert, in 1840, she not only took him on as husband and loved him very much, but she also took him on as her personal mentor. Albert was a huge proponent of education, believing that an educated population would make not only a stronger country, but would keep the monarchy stable as well. He, and with Victoria's hand, funded over 150 different institutions, charities, and educational centers. The greatest example of which is the Imperial College in London, which was founded by the royal couple and remains one of the top educational institutions in the world to this day. Also, unlike previous monarchs who usually kept to London and the surrounding areas, Victoria and Albert visited industrial towns such as Leeds and Lancaster. This was very irregular behavior for a monarch, but this also meant that more people had access to the monarchy, and that meant that the people were more loyal. In addition, she also published the royal photographs, which was very new at the time, for a very high cost of four pounds and four shillings, but this proved to be extremely popular within the population, and she sold 60,000 copies. Now, these industrial towns play into the most significant era of Queen Victoria's reign, and the most significant societal change ever seen by humanity. I'm talking about the Industrial Revolution, and Queen Victoria was lucky enough to take part. In 1837, when Victoria became queen, much of Britain was still rural, with 80% of the population still living in the countryside. Most of them were farmers, attached to their religions and their land, and many of them were spinning wool and cotton into cloth, which, as we know, doing that by hand takes ages. Soon, new machines were invented that were allowed this work to be done in a fraction of the time, and also at a fraction of the cost. This made Britain into the world's leading exporter of cloth, but the side effect was it put hundreds of people out of work. By 1850, because so many people were out of work, 50% of all British people lived in towns and cities. Let's think about it for a moment. It only took 13 years from an entire country to transfer from being agrarian and rural to 50% of the country being in towns and cities. This was unheard of before. 
In most situations, heads of state or politicians would have been caught napping or sleeping, but Victoria was sharp, and her and her husband Albert caught on to this trend rather quickly. Albert, especially, foresaw that people from the countryside need to come into industrial towns quickly for work, and that machines were becoming more and more powerful. He therefore advised Victoria to invest heavily in Britain's railway system. She was initially reluctant, but over 6,000 miles of railway, railway excuse me, tracks were built towards the end of the 19th century, towards the end of the 1800s, yes? Suddenly, a person could travel from London to Bristol in a matter of hours instead of days, at speeds to up to 60 miles an hour, or around 100 kilometers an hour. Victorian engineers also invented machines that could run whole factories, without human support, thereby exploding Britain's export potential. Victoria saw this and gave funding to numerous factory projects throughout the country. By 1870, over 100,000 steam engines were now operational on trains, factories, ships, and other machines, including in people's homes. Victoria was also brilliant in PR, and she had a very sharp mind for this. Any technological or theological innovation was heavily promoted and publicized by the Queen, including, for example, the ideas of a person named Charles Darwin, who then became one of the most important theorists who ever lived. Charles Darwin did, in fact, live in Victorian Britain. These industrial innovations with the steam engine allowed Britain to become completely industrialized and one of the first countries in the world to do so. It also allowed Britain to produce ships which were unrivaled for the Royal Navy, and the Royal Navy pretty much went unchallenged around the world. All of this made the country, and subsequently the royals, hysterically rich, and proved to the people that Victoria was a sharp, forward-looking, and smart queen, rather than being the emotional sack of hormones that most 18-year-olds are. Queen Victoria's reign was just going up and up and up, until December the 14th, 1861. Prince Albert dies suddenly at the age of 42, and the queen's life is turned upside down. Queen Victoria was inconsolable, and she entered a period of mourning, which didn't actually end for the rest of her life. From then on, if we actually look at pictures of Queen Victoria, she's only seen wearing black. She ordered statues of Prince Albert to be built all over the country, and museums to be named after him, including, by the way, it's not really a museum, but it's still a famous project, the famous Royal Albert Hall, which also bears his mark. However... While she immortalized her husband, she herself was becoming ever more secluded. Victoria withdrew from public life, and she did not attend Parliament for 13 years. It was only in 1876 when her trusted Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli managed to awaken the Queen and return her to public life. Disraeli knew that the rebellion in India, which happened in 1858, and which was controlled by the British East India Company, would start again, and that the governor in India was far too weak. In addition, people in Britain felt that the absence of the Queen was affecting their daily lives, and they began to question if it was really necessary to keep the monarchy. Think about it, you haven't seen the Queen for 13 years, but she's still taking taxes from you. Me, as a person who doesn't have so much money, will say, hmm, why am I paying taxes to a queen that I can't see? Anyway, 
he advised her, the Israeli that is, advised her to assume direct control over India. This would not only give Britain direct control over a vast territory with a lot of resources, but it would also make her a symbol of not just Queen of Britain, but of a powerful empress projecting her reign across the world. She agreed and was crowned Empress of India. Britain became the most powerful country in the world, with an empire in which the sun never sets, controlling the economies from Australia to China, from India to South Africa, and from Egypt to Canada. One-third of the world's territory, and one-fourth of the world's population, would now have to recognize Queen Victoria as their head of state. Queen Victoria sumptuously staged her return to public life, and especially her coronation as Empress of India, and as the most powerful woman and human in the world. And the people loved her for it. On the 22nd of January 1901, Queen Victoria, or the Dear Old Queen, as she was referred, died at the age of 81. At the time, she was the longest-serving monarch ever, and the longest-serving woman in any kind of position of power. This was only surpassed recently by Queen Elizabeth II. Victoria wrote an average of 2,500 words per day about her life as queen, about world affairs, and much of it survives to this day. As I said before, she was physically unpossessing, being short, and quite chubby, but she succeeded in presenting a grand image. By the time she died, she was seen as a benevolent matriarch, embodying power and the symbol of the empire. She was the most powerful woman in the world, changing her country from agrarianism to empire, making it stupendously rich, and funding education projects and reforms that no other country could hope to compete with. Victoria was special because she not only cared for herself, like most monarchs of the time, but she also cared for her people. She realized that a strong country is based off of grassroots education, and a population that lived well was well educated, and had a leader that they could unite around. That leader was her, and she will forever be immortalized as a woman of the world. Well, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of the Historian Weekly Podcast has come to an end. Once again, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening, and I really do hope you enjoy listening to these podcasts as much as I enjoy creating them. Please leave me a message or a comment on my Facebook or Instagram page with what I should do next. I am considering also making videos to supplement these podcasts, so please let me know what you would like to see in them. Anyway, have a good week, everybody.